0: seated. Is that better? There it goes. (laughs) Heard the screech. Well, if you turn your Bibles with me to Psalm 125, we are being discipled by the Psalms of Ascent, and it's this collection of 15 Psalms, Psalm 120, Psalm 134. We're only going to get through half of them this summer and pick it up next summer. But the big idea, right, is we are pilgrims making our way towards God, and these songs equip us for all the distractions and dangers and joys and sorrows and difficulties that, that are part of the Christian life. And so we're going to look at the psalm of faith here and the song of faith here in Psalm 125. And so let's read God's word together. This is God's word. Uh, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. And this is God's word. He has spoken to us today. His word is true and trustworthy. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we do experience... uh, times when our faith falters and so we thank you that it is true for all who trust in the lord uh, that our future security doesn't depend on the quality of our faith but on the unshakable reality of christ's perfect faith who paid the price for our sin who rose from the dead who sits at your right hand and has promised to never stop doing good for his church and so as we meditate together this morning on Psalm 125, fill our eyes with the wonder of your love and presence that surrounds us, that we could see how secure we are through faith. And as you do that, heal our unbelief, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we have a, a letter from, Phil, from Martin Luther written to his friend Philip Melanchthon. All right, so a little history lesson if you don't know. Luther's mission in the Protestant Reformation was a success. A major part of that is due to Philip Melanchthon. Uh, God used, wasn't just one person. Um, they complimented each other, right? Martin Luther was this guy who drank beer, insulted the Pope, preached the word of God, was known to be brash, crass. <laughs> You can go online and find a Martin Luther insult generator if you're, you get bored one day, and, right? Very eloquent about the gospel, but what balanced him out was Melanchthon, who was much more gentle. He played better with others. But by nature, Philip was much more prone to anxiety about the whole process. And his anxiety about growing this new church in the 1500s drove Luther crazy. <laughs> And so listen to this letter to his anxious friend and see how you would respond if this is put your your anxiety in, in Philip's place. Luther writes, grace and peace to you in Christ, in Christ I say, and not in the world. I am heartily opposed to your great anxiety, which as you write is weakening you. That it is conquering you completely is due not to the importance of the affair, but to the extent of your unbelief. Why are you constantly fretting? Truly, I pray diligently for you, and it pains me that you suck anxiety into yourself like a blood leech and make my prayers powerless. (laughs) I don't know whether your anxiety is stupidity or the Holy Spirit. Only the Lord Jesus knows. (laughs) But truly, I'm not very anxious about this matter. God can raise the dead so he can preserve the cause. Even if it fails, he can raise it up. If it succeeds, God will sustain it. If we do not let ourselves be raised up by his promises, then who else in the world are they for? But more of this another time, though writing you is as effective as pouring water into the sea. (laughs) May Christ comfort, strengthen, and teach you through his spirit. Amen. See, your anxiety's healed, right? (laughs) That's one way to confront anxiety. one that cracked me up because of so blunt. And we're not used to talking to one another like that. But Psalm 125 is like the gentler side <laughs> of coming, coming at our anxiety, our fear, right? As Psalm 20, 125 is the same goal as Luther. We, we unnecessarily carry fear. Um, and so oftentimes we can act like just sucking all the cares of the world into us like a blood leech. <laughs> But this is much more positive. It's saying, let's get your eyes off ourselves and see the Lord and his promises because if his promises are not for us, who else in the world are they for? So look at the one who surrounds us. And what I love about Psalm 125 is this isn't um, a naive call to trust while the world goes not well. Uh, it's, it's a call to trust in the midst of chaos. And so... If I could summarize the way this is going to lead us, is going to lead us um, to a place of peace. I mean, the psalmist is saying you can relax. <laughs> peace be upon Israel. This is what our anxious, continually freaking out souls need. And so let's look at this together. Psalm 125 is going to help us see the power of faith. It's going to also call us to doubt our doubts as we wrestle by faith and then to trust our peace. And so look at the power of faith. You know, as I got ready to, to preach these psalms, I wasn't ready for how closely connected and how the themes just keep coming back to the same thing, right? That so many of these are about assurance, they're about confidence, they're about the reality that God is with his people. Um, and, and so the, some people believe that the psalms of ascent were, were psalms were, that were recited as pilgrims would actually go up 15 stairs to the temple. So each step, they would read a psalm as they get closer and closer to God's presence. And as you go up, it's like the benefits keep getting better and better. Right? And so what this psalm in particular is doing is using the local geography to build up the faith of God's people. Look at verse 1. It says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. And as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. And so, it's an image. Mount Zion was the name of the mountain on which Jerusalem was found. So when you're reading the Psalms, often Zion and Jerusalem are synonyms. And what, what's fascinating is, is what the psalmist is not doing. He's, he's not looking at the weakness of his faith, nor is he describing faith the way we modern people talk about faith. Right? We talk about my faith and what I believe and what I think God is like. Right? We describe faith very much as a personal experience, our truth, our work to believe but what the psalmist is doing he's describing spiritual reality for everyone who has faith in the lord which forces us not to stare at ourselves <laughs> which is our temptation but to look outside of ourselves at the living god All right i mean our our natural temptation right i want my faith to grow stronger i don't believe enough that's why i'm freaking out And so we we put on our I think I can train hat and we just, right, try and flex our spiritual muscles and believe harder, right? And so if someone says, do you believe? Are you a Christian? Do you trust God's promises? What's a a, a natural default mode? I'm trying. (laughs) I wish I believed better, right? See, there's a, a huge difference in asking. How is your faith? How strong is it? Am I believing enough? That's all about me. Right? That's that's what's called navel gazing. You're just staring at your own belly button. Right? It's an inward look versus what the psalmist is doing here, which is describing faith, describing the Lord, describing the object of our faith. Right? Because what matters? What is the Lord like? What What is He promised to do? What is he doing? How trustworthy is the object of my faith? These are different questions that that get our eyes off ourselves. I I like the illustration of a chair, right? Everyone came in here and sat down on the chair, and you trusted it, right? That it will hold your glory, your weight, and that the chair is not going to collapse, right? And there's different ways to sit down on a chair, right? You'd look strange and everyone would notice if you just tenderly sat down on your chair, wondering if it's gonna hold you, (laughs) Call that small faith. Or you can sit down like a normal person, right? Just have faith. Or you can jump on it like most boys under the age of 12 do, right? They've got lots of faith. They don't even think about it, right? But does the quality of your faith affect whether the chair will hold you or not? No. Not at all. Whether you have small faith, large faith, crazy faith, it doesn't matter. What matters most is the trustworthiness of the object you, you are putting all your hopes and faith in. Right? Which means you could have the tiniest faith, the faith the size of a mustard seed, as Jesus would say. And that would be enough to hold you. So when you come back to Psalm 125 and it says, all those who trust in the Lord and you're like a mountain, immovable, enduring, it's, it's for all those who have faith, whether small or large. And the effect of that faith, whether small or large, is you are like a mountain. You cannot be moved, abiding forever. Like Mount Zion. Right? immovable this is the fruit of faith and the idea of all the way through the psalms is uh, bad things happen but because you have the lord on your side uh, you're not completely crushed you're not swept away As you know it's just not it's you picture a picture of rock climbing illustration it's you may slip and fall but you're held on to right you're not moved so when you go through things you can be confident that God is with you, right? I mean, that's the reality of a mountain. It, a mountain is a giant rock. It's not going anywhere. Mount Zion has, was there before Israel. God claimed that mountain for his dwelling place. It's still there today. It cannot be moved by circumstances, right? And so the effect of faith for anyone who trusts in the Lord is you're like Mount Zion. cannot be moved and you abide forever, right? So earlier this summer, I mean, you can ask Ezra about his experience. He's not here, he's in children's church. But we got, we got caught coming down Buck Mountain in a massive thunderstorm, right? Torrential rain, you can't see more than like the length of your arm. Uh, we saw later wind was just knocking trees over. There's just a little bit of hail. And so I'm walking down with three drowned rat looking boys. <laughs> who are not happy about the experience. There's like a river of water running down the trail. We're wet. We're trying not to slip and fall, just trying to get back to the car. You know, thinking about that experience, you know what wasn't moved at all by the, the massive thunderstorm? It's the mountain. Right? It stayed there. Right? The circumstances. And that's the idea here, is that circumstances don't sweep those who trust the Lord away. You're unmoved. You're grounded. And that even the tiniest faith, because of the one whom you trust, that is true of you. God will never let you slip away to your doom. Right? And second, the second piece of this is you abide forever, and mountains abide, right? They they just sit there. It's a rock. It's not going anywhere, and the idea is there's a permanence to a person of faith, right? Where we can know that, that evil, suffering, pain will not have the last word. And because God is the infinite, e- eternal, and unchangeable one, and I'm trusting him, the effect of faith is you become like him who, who is forever, right? Right? I really like what uh, the way Derek Kidner put this is that the psalmist is describing the relationship with God as a personal bond, and it's a bond that is way too intimate to just be a passing fling. Right? You are bonded together. That's that forever language. And the portrait here is of a person that, a people, that God will never leave alone. Just imagine to have that kind of relationship. All who believe are like Mount Zion. You can't be moved. You abide forever. You're forever joined to the living God. And that's true whether you feel like that or not. Right? I think this is why Peter, why Jesus could say to Peter, remember Peter and his flaky faith, right? on you, Peter, on your confession is what he's talking about and on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and the next immediate thing jesus or peter does is yell at jesus for promising to die for him right great faith luther would call it stupid faith (laughs) right peter's faith isn't reliable Two verses later, he's yelling at Jesus, right? But faith in the Lord, because the Lord and his promises are immovable, the church's future is rock solid. It's this idea that right, God's people's faith constantly are moving, but because of the object of our faith, we're solid. We abide. I mean, listen to how the Westminster Confession describes saving faith, that the principal acts of saving faith, this is what you are called to do, accept Receive and rest, right? That's the language. Accept, receive, and rest on Christ alone for justification, for God to accept you as perfect in his sight in Christ, for sanctification, right? To claim you as his own, and to get eternal life, and that all comes to you through the covenant of grace, through God's promises. But then it goes on to say, here's how faith works. Faith may vary in degrees, It may be weak or strong, and it may often and in many ways be assailed and weakened, but it gains the victory. It matures in many believers to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and perfecter of our faith. So the question is, this morning, is will you trust in God's promises and see what he's saying about you? That those who trust in the Lord are like a mountain, Mount Zion. Immovable, abiding forever. Right? And the reason that is possible is because of verse 2. Right? This is good Hebrew poetry. Say, that sounds great. What does that mean, and how do I get it? Uh, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Right? And the idea is here's Mount Zion. And all the way around it are other mountains. Like it wasn't it wasn't the highest mountain in that area. And so the reason why we who believe are not shaken or not moved is because we are surrounded by the Lord in his presence. Right? And our protection, our being surrounded never ends. It's from this time forth and forevermore. Isn't that amazing? this is the image. Picture Fort Knox. Fort Knox is one of the most secure places in the world. Houses I don't know how many gazillions of dollars of gold, uh, of our country's gold. It's so secure no visitors are ever allowed. It's surrounded by a steel fence. The walls are lined with concrete and granite, reinforced by steel. I mean, they don't even tell you all the security measures, obviously, but that people think there's landmines leading up to it. Electric fences, infrared, seismic sensors. You can feel when somebody gets too close. And if you were actually able to get in, you would find soldiers everywhere with expert marksmen on each tower. And if you got past all that, you got to the vault door. The door itself weighs at least 20 tons, so good luck. All of our country's resources have gone into protecting our treasure with this great security. And what the psalmist is saying about Israel, about God's people, all who trust in the Lord, greater small faith, right? You're more secure than Fort Knox because the Lord himself surrounds his people, it's a personal pronoun, that we know from Exodus 19 he sees as his treasured possession. And we know even more clearly from First Peter two, that we, the church, are God's treasured possession in Christ. Right? And so the, the portrait is, you are surrounded by the Lord, and so whatever it is you go through, nothing in all of creation can break through the Lord's presence to get to His people without first dealing with the sovereign God, the maker of heaven and earth. Right? He's, he's your first and last line of defense. You just start adding all the lines from the Psalms of Ascent that the one who surrounds us is our help. He's on our side. He's a God who wants to give mercy to his people. It's a God who promises to guard you from all evil, who keeps your coming and going from this time forth and forevermore. I mean, these just keep amping up the reality. God is watching, guarding, caring. And if that weren't enough, Jesus says, Father... Guard, keep your people, keep the church. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. Don't take them out of this dangerous place, but guard them from evil. Keep them, guard them, protect their faith. See, the idea is, this is the power of faith. The tiniest faith means you have the Lord and all of his resources protecting you. Now, because we're human, That doesn't always describe our reality of us trusting (laughs) that our faith is that effective. And so that's point two, that we need to doubt our doubts. Because we have experiences where we wonder, God, why did you let that one through? Right? That hurt. And we have questions. You may say, Pastor, I don't feel immovable. I don't feel like a mountain. My lived experience of faith is like a yo-yo. It's just constantly going up and down. Some days I'm full of faith, some days I'm full of joy, aware of God's presence, and other days, weeks, months, or maybe even years, God feels far away. And so what's comforting about this is look at who God's talking about. He's talking about Israel. Does Israel have a reputation for being a people full of faith? Not if you've ever read the Old Testament all right. Exodus 15, they're dramatically set free from Egypt, and they sing this beautiful song about the Lord triumphing gloriously as all the dead Egyptian armies just floating in the Red Sea. And they say, Who is like the Lord who leads with steadfast love and terrifies the nations? On that day they felt invincible, and then three days later they grumbled and complained. God, we're thirsty. <laughs> Their faith hit rock bottom. All right. You can think about David. King David, who would say, your steadfast love is better than life. Who then also writes Psalm 51. After a train wreck of adultery, murder, coveting, idolatry. I mean, you just run through all ten commandments. All the way to Peter. right? The one on whom Jesus will build his church. Says to Jesus, I swear I will die for you. And then that, later that same evening, he's cursing and swearing that he does not know Jesus. See, Israel and the disciples are human. They're the ones that God uses to teach us about faith. And their faith falters. Their faith has cracks in it. Some days they crumble under the pressure and as their mood goes all over the place. And what do you need when you go like this? Right? We need a rock-solid assurance that my security doesn't depend on me, but on the Lord. Right? That those who trust in the Lord are surrounded. Do you believe that? If so, it's true, whether you feel it or not. Right? I mean, Eugene Peterson would say that discipleship, following Jesus, this is what it is. It's a decision to live by what I know is true about God. Not by what I feel about him or feel about myself or feel about other Christians or feel about the world. It's a decision to live by what I know about God. All right. And what we know about God as the mountains surround Jerusalem, the Lord surrounds his people. All right. So we've got to talk to our our doubts, we've got to doubt our doubts. Verse 3 adds to another potential source of doubt. It says, The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. And the, uh, that scepter is ruling language, right? A scepter is something a king holds. And so it's saying wickedness, it's saying right now, somehow, in the the psalmist is aware that wickedness is ruling and reigning. It's generic enough to apply to pretty much everything you can think of. Right, A life lived under the tyranny of pain and injustice unfair. I mean, Israel knew that. It's their whole story. I mean, just go through judges. How many different times were they conquered by different people groups? Culminating in Babylon, leading God's people away uh, with fish in their mouth. Right? And so what I find fascinating is you have this beautiful portrait of faith but they're able to look honestly at the world and say right now it looks like wickedness is in charge. But it's not permanent because the God loves his people and he does not want the righteous to tap out to let their hands do wrong. Right? And it's not naive. It's not putting your hand, head in the sand, so to speak. It's able to look at evil and say you won't win. You will not conquer. You will not rest because the Lord will not let that happen. And the, the word for rest, it sounds an awful lot like Noah, but it's this Sabbath rest. Um, it's this portrait that this, there's a land allotted to his people, which is inheritance language. And inheritance language is sonship language. <laughs> and so what verse 3 is saying is God will not let the wicked take what belongs to his children and he will not let them rule and reign forever. That evil has an expiration date because he loves his people too much, and he doesn't want his people to be tempted to join them, and that's part of why he's going to destroy evil. That's what it says, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Right? And so what faith does, according to this psalm, is similar to what Samwise Gamgee does when he's in the land of death, feeling despair. He looks up, at the sky and there peeping above the clouds, there was a white star twinkling in it. Tolkien writes, the beauty of it smote his heart and as he looked up out of the forsaken land, hope returned to him and there like a shaft clear and cold, this thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow, the darkness is only a small and passing thing because there was light and beauty forever beyond its reach. See, even more than the psalmist or Tolkien, we look at Jesus. Did suffering, death, danger, nakedness, sword, suffering and unjust death, did that take away his faith, take away the reality of who he belonged to? Take away what belonged to him. God gave him the inheritance, which is the entire earth, through his suffering. So what we're called to do is doubt our doubts so that when suffering comes, when it feels like the scepter of wickedness is ruling over us, we tell ourselves, I am God's child. And he will not let evil take what is my promised inheritance in Christ. Right? That's why Romans 8 is so good, because this is what the Spirit does in those moments to help us hold on is the Spirit tells your spirit that you are God's child, and if you are God's child and you're an heir, and if you're an heir of God and a fellow heir of Christ, you can say, Blessed are the meek, for the they will inherit the earth. This is mine. All right? And so do you know how that works? All right? Do you know how it works to it, by experience to, to see the scepter of wickedness and say, It shall not rest, because I know what my God has promised to give me through inheritance as a gift. Right. You gotta tell yourself, it's just like parenting. Our kids suffer. They they fall, they fail, they get fat lips, they break a bone, they may get some kind of horrible disease, they may be bullied, they may be picked on, they're gonna suffer because this is a broken world, but they never stop being your child. Even better, with the Lord. Our future is secure because we belong to Him. And He, according to this, will not let the land allotted to the righteous be conquered permanently. Evil has an expiration date. And so that's the warning here. All right. This is also hard. Right? This is not easy. Um, but it says, this is a temptation, when evil is ruling and reigning, when faith gets difficult, when it, when it looks like the world, your world may be better off without trying to keep God happy, because obedience doesn't seem to be paying off. Right? There are those who will defect, who will turn aside to their crooked ways, as it says in verse 5 who don't believe and slip away, right? Verses one to three are trying to help us not do that. <laughs> that. That we would see the promise of future security that evil will not last so that evil will not persuade us to join in so that we don't miss out on our glorious future with Jesus. You know what I mean by that? You know? There's things that you want, that you crave, that you know the Lord said no to. And then because of Jesus, you're willing to say no. All right. But there's a doubt, right? When you read this stuff, verses 4 and 5, you've you got to ask, there are those who turn aside, what if that is me? How do I know I will make it to the end? How do I know I won't pick up my hands to do wrong? I confess my sin every week at church. What if my faith falters? What if I don't do that Christianity thing right? What if something I look at that God calls evil and I want it and I cave in and I make a train wreck of my life, which is pretty much Israel's story again and again and again. In other words, what if I slip, miss the handhold and fall? Will God catch me? And people ask these questions. Am I on God's plan? Think of God's plan for my life. Am I on plan X, Y, or Z? Did he have to make the alphabet longer just for me? <laughs> right? I mean, doubts creep in. And this is where you got to go back to verses 1, 2, and 3. Right? All who trust in the Lord are surrounded. We are locked in. He will catch you. I mean, Paul would say in Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.16, the saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because God, Christ, cannot deny himself. Even Paul has to write that to another pastor. When you are faithless, God is faithful. And God cannot deny what Jesus has done, which is by his church for him, right? And so what this psalm, I think, is calling us to do, is do you really know the character of the Lord who surrounds you? Or is your faith in yourself, your ability, your right thinking, right? We're reformed theologians, we we love to trust our theological precision Is your faith dependent in suffering on who is president, who your pastor is, your doctor? Right? I mean, you can just run down the list. Or are you one who trusts in the Lord? And if so, you are encircled by his presence. And thank God in a life that constantly changes and that people are deeply fallible that we can have that rock-solid assurance that God is on our side, Right? right? I mean, people can make that decision, and they do, to walk away, right? That was 1 Timothy 3, that if you deny him, he will deny you. But that doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's a deliberate choice to say, God, I am done with you. I don't know you and I don't want you. It's the only thing Jesus says that cannot be forgiven is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. All right. And blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is rejecting the one to whom the Holy Spirit is pointing to Jesus, the one who surrounds his people. All right. Which means we have really good reason through all of these things, through suffering through my own failure, um, through evil reigning to say, I need to doubt my doubts right now and trust in God's promises that he is holding on to me better than I could ever hold on to him. Right? Which allows us to then trust our peace, or to, to pray and live out what verses 4 and 5 are calling us to do. And this is we will be more brief here. Right but if you if you're tracking with the psalm that the Lord is those who trust in the Lord will never be moved, you will abide forever, and His protection will never end. It begins from this time forth and forevermore, and you can say that every day, and that He will not let evil get the final word. If you really believe that, you know what that frees you up to do? Exactly what verse four says: Do good. right You can. Do good deeds of faith, even under the scepter of wickedness. <laughs> right, that Since God is on my side, I'm secure like a mountain. I'm surrounded by grace. I can go out into the world and serve. And verse 4 and 5 is a prayer. Lord, do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in hearts. Do good to those who believe. Right. It's pretty astounding. Lord, bless those who are actively living like you. It's not a prayer that shifts gears from being saved by faith to being saved by being good. No, it's therefore God bless those who by faith are actively doing good. It's not saying anything different than the book of Galatians. You know how Galatians work? How dare you leave the gospel of grace? Don't ever even think about it, because if you leave the gospel of grace, that everything depends on Jesus. Uh, you're following another gospel and let them be cursed and go to hell. That's Galatians 1, right? And then it goes on to say, look, we live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. We are justified by faith alone, not by what we do. And so, oh foolish Galatians, why would you ever try and perfect yourself by keeping the law? We have the blessing of the Spirit. But it ends after making this blunt defense that you are saved by faith alone, in, in chapter 6, where it says, God is not mocked, because for whatever one sows, he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And therefore, let us not grow weary of doing good. You can hear that language again. Because in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially those who are in the household of faith. Do you hear what he's saying? Grace, those for those who trust in the Lord, set you free to not think only of yourself when life stinks. Right? That we can relax, trust that the Lord is at work, rise up and look for places to do good for God's people, for everyone, according to Galatians, right, and so if this prayer asking God to bless his people is true for Israel before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, how much more for us who know we are children of God, that we can call God Father, right, who know that By faith we were given the right to become, to be called children of God. Born not of flesh, born not of the will of man, but of God, it says John. So the idea is, if you are trusting Jesus, if you have peace with God, we're set free to serve, we're set free to do good. And according to the psalm, verse 4, that's already happening. Right, this is a description. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. Right? They've, they've gotten right with God. They're, they're actively, they're out there. They're involved. They're, they're, they're not turning aside to their crooked ways, but they're, they're following the Lord. Right? So the question is, if you really believe you are that safe, what is God calling us to do as a church? Right? One see what kind of love we have that the Father would call us children of God to therefore, right, don't get the order mixed up, therefore, do good. Do good and trust that God will do good to you as you seek to to live out his commandments. I'll end with a, a story here and then we'll sing our last song. Um, Jamie Winship, was a worked, worked for the U.S. government, but he started his career as a, a cop in Washington, D.C., and he used those experiences to send him to hard places in the world to, to share the gospel. And, and so he ended up being called uh, to, to teach at a university on a small island in Indonesia, in, in a small island where 98% of his students were Muslim. Uh, it was one of those places that was also like just, just on a terrorist watch list because they would have nominal Muslims, right, normal kind people, as well as just terrifying people who would be happily to kill you if you preached the gospel. Well, during his first year, he made a mistake and was a little bit too aggressive and talking about Islam, and he was arrested for insulting Islam. Right? And in the legal world of in the legal Muslim world, it, it's a step below blasphemy. It's an automatic 10-year prison sentence. This is in the first year, he has he's a young dad, wife and kids at this stage, right? And so well, this is what he did, right? If you're convicted, by the way, your wife and kids can't leave either. They are stuck here for 10 years. And so he contacted the US government and said, please help me. And they said, sorry, buddy, you're on your own. You aren't valuable enough for us to get involved. Right? And so at this point, this is fallible faith, right? Jamie feels lousy. He feels abandoned by God. He's been abandoned by his government. He feels powerless. He feels alone. He's, the court date's coming up. It's an island. He can't really escape, so he's pretty much on house arrest at this point. And the only way he, was ever, he could ever see a way out of it is he needed a Muslim to stand up and defend him. All right, because a non-Muslim was not allowed to speak in court. And who, what kind of Muslim lawyer would actually stand up and defend a Christian American? And so basically when he went to court, he said, I'm saying goodbye to my family, expecting not to see anyone for 10 years. And so they get into the courtroom, they read the charges, and the, the cleric asks in the trial, okay, all right, these charges are true. The defendant's not disagreeing with them. Is there anyone who will speak on behalf of the defendant? And at the last minute after some silence, in walks a Muslim man who's dressed with authority, who starts speaking in English and says, I will speak for him. And he looks at the court says, do you know who I am? Right, it's a big deal to walk into a Muslim court and be able to speak, much less gain respect. They all bow their heads to him. And he starts to tell this story. You know, I was a student in America, the government the Indonesian government sent me on a scholarship to Arizona State and I was failing. And if you fail the Indonesian government, you're le- you're just doomed to be punished for the rest of your life. You don't fail the government. And so what happened was two other grad students came up to him during that program and said, "We believe God is telling us to help you get through your grad program." And in fact, their wives started to help his wife acclimate to, to America and what he said they did, these two Americans sacrificed for him to the point where he got better grades than they did. And he said, as Christians, they loved and sacrificed for me a Muslim. And so for three years, I went to their Bible study and, and with my Christian friends. Is there anyone in this room who's going to accuse me of being a mad Muslim? They're all like, no, <laughs> don't, don't speak against authority. And so what he says is, I was a Muslim student in a Christian environment and they sacrificed for me. Here is a a young man who is a, a Christian man in a Muslim environment who made a mistake. Are we gonna let him pay for that mistake for the next 10 years? And then he just walks out. I leave the decision to you. And that's when the cleric in charge says, I think we should drop the charges. And so they get outside the courtroom and Jamie has no idea who this guy is, right? Who are you? He says, well, did you notice the empty seat up in the courtroom? Who was, who was supposed to sit there? It's the head of the Islamic Association of the entire country, a big, bigwig in the government. He says, well, that's me. In fact, what happened is the guy who was supposed to be there that wouldn't have helped you died in a bus accident the day before. And I was appointed and flew here specifically to be for your trial all the way from Jakarta, which is like flying from LA to New York to get there just in time to protect this one man whose faith floundered. Talk about an example of Psalm 125. That those who trust in the Lord are surrounded, even on the other side of the world. Surrounded by grace. Who's able to use a bus accident to protect his own far from home something to think about let's pray father we thank you that you are good and we thank you for jesus who shows you are good and you, we ask we pray psalm 4 125 verse 4 that you would do good to those of us who have professed faith who are at, at the work of making your goodness known those whose hearts you've changed and I pray you would protect us from turning aside to, the, to, to our crooked ways, but that you would lead us into the peace of Christ. And as we experience that peace, Lord, that that would send us out ready and willing to do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. So we thank you for this psalm and the, the assurance it gives. Now may your spirit apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.